I was gabbing at the coffee shop. <laughs> Last time I looked at the screen, Ben was singing, and then I looked up and I saw the piano player in the hallway and knew I'm in trouble. <laughs> so if I'm a little out of breath, there's a reason. So good morning, everyone. So this church is definitely too friendly because I got caught out in the friendliness. But we want to give you a friendly welcome. And if you're a guest, I'm catching my breath. And I'll tell you, my name's Mark. <sighs> One of the pastors, glad that you're here. Hey, thanks for making Easter a great, just a great Easter. So when you think about two extravaganzas here at DeForest, thinking about our 11 services, there are probably some 5,500 people that we were able to connect with. And you were probably part of that. So thanks. Thanks for inviting people. Thanks for serving. Thanks for loving on people as they came through, the kids, the families. And thanks for those of you who were part of the meal pack this week. Did you hear what happened? So we served up, packed up 50,000 meals. We bought those meals through the Thanksgiving offering that you gave to last November. $15,000 buys 50,000 meals. Those 50,000 meals will feed one of the schools of Mission of Hope down in Haiti, one of our partners. It'll feed a school of 150 to 200 kids for a whole year. Isn't that awesome? So here's what happened. Here's the cool wrinkle of the meal pack. We did it with our partner schools. So on Thursday night, I was there at table seven, and we were packing up meals with families and kids, Leah was a kindergartner at Mendota, and we were stacking the meals on the card there. It was great. We packed 20,000 meals on Thursday night. Then the kids at Mendota did another 10,000 Friday morning, and then those at Westside Elementary and Sun Prairie, another one of our partner schools, those families, a couple hundred people from here, packed another 20,000. So 50,000 meals to feed a whole school for a year. And Mission of Hope, get this, Mission of Hope feeds 90,000 kids a day, a day. And we're part of that. So thanks. So it's a good day when there's good mail. So I'll frequently go by the dining room table or I'll just say to Lori, did we get any good mail? This is not good mail. This, I want to do like that, but this is a bill, so I better pay attention, right? But I don't, I don't go for that first. If I get this one, the handwritten one, now I've been duped by, I forget who he is. He's the president of like Dish TV or something like that, and it looked like a handwritten. He's faked me out like three times now, but no more. No, but when I get a real one like this for my cousin in Switzerland, man, it's a good day. Good mail is a good day. Now, those of you millennials here, you may not know what a letter is. So, so it's like a card here. It's, it's like a note here where somebody actually took the time to just express some news, share some news, just connect with you. And it's so meaningful when you get good mail. And so imagine 2,000 years ago that you were sitting in one of the house churches. It's a small group of Christians. Life's pretty hard for you. You're going through a lot of suffering. And a guy named Silas walks in, and he says, man, I got some good mail for you today. 
Peter, the apostle, has written a letter to encourage you, to strengthen you, to clarify again that this is the gospel. And so hold on to this truth. And it was a great day when Silas left and the people of your small house church knew, hey, we got a copy because somebody copied it down. And you read it over and you read it over. And for 2,000 years, Christ's followers have been reading Peter's two letters. Who's Pete? Well, Peter was one of the disciples. We looked at him last week if you were here for Easter. He's one of his disciples who went from uh, being this big heroic guy that understands who Jesus is and is always wanting to step out first and be strong and bold to this guy who completely wimps out, remember, in the courtyard of the high priest to a couple of servant girls, won't even acknowledge that he knows him. He's the guy who's denied Christ, and then he's the guy who's restored by Christ in John 21. He's empowered by the Spirit, and he's this completely new man when we meet him on the streets of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, and he's heralding the truth of God's great gospel message that is all ours in Christ, that he came, that he was from Nazareth, that he died, you guys crucified him, and the people, their hearts were struck, and they go, what should we do? This one who's dead is now alive, and he says, you got to repent, you got to turn to God, and and you got to move forward in faith, and you mark that through baptism, and it says 3,000 people believed, and it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that some of these people were from far off places, like the very people that received this letter. Really interesting. So grab your Bible. We're in 1 Peter. So look for some of the guys' names in the back of your Bible. James, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3rd time. So Peter's right after James, right before John's three letters. 1 Peter. Here's his greeting. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he uses this designation, apostle is actually someone who's commissioned with a message. Literally, it means a sent out one. He says, I've been sent out by Christ to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, with this message, the message of God's love for us in Christ. Who's he written it to? To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. You see the slide behind, and that slide shows the very places that this letter was carried to by Silas, probably in a circular manner, going through these places. Asia Minor, think modern-day Turkey, those people. What do we know about these people? Well, they are mostly Gentiles. There's a mix of Jews. But we'll note, too, that when he writes this, there actually are more Old Testament quotations and allusions percentage-wise in Peter's letters than in any other book in the New Testament. So we're going, why in the world would he be referencing so much of the Old Testament to people that didn't know anything about the Old Testament because they didn't grow up Jewish? And the reason is... These people's faith journey, these Gentiles, they're not Jewish. They came to faith through their journey into synagogues in these different places where they heard not only about the promises of God and this coming Savior, but then as they met these Christ followers who were in these places, they heard about Jesus. And so they're predominantly Gentiles. There's a mix of Jews. And he describes them not just as scattered exiles, but as chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit, forgiven and sprinkled clean by Jesus' lifeblood. 
Verse 6 and 7, if you just look down, talks about all these different kinds of trials. And so they're followers of Jesus. They've heard the message. They're believing the message. They've placed their faith fully in Christ, and they're going through really, really hard times. And so he's writing this letter, he tells us, in chapter 5, verse 12, for these reasons. Look it up on the screen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother... I have written to you briefly, 104 verses, encouraging you. So it's a letter to encourage, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. Stand fast in the grace of God when your life and your world is falling apart and there's a lot of pressure because you're a follower of Christ. So he says to the end that they would live out this blessing that he ends the book with. And I love 1 Peter 5.10. In fact, right before coming to Door Creek, it's now 13 years ago, just going through a really hard time, this verse, the, the promises of the blessing that he gives them, just really, really was an anchor for my own heart and emotions. He writes this. this is, I'm writing to encourage you so that you'd experience this. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. That's what you're doing, but it's just going to be a little while. And after that, that he himself, this God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You know, there's a whole bunch of us going through hard things right now. And what a great thing to come to a letter written for people who are going through all kinds of trials. The unique things that were going on for them probably had more to do with not just life is hard, but the unique sufferings about being identified with Christ. You know what Christian means is little Christ, little Christ. And so maybe you go, well, that, that, that's my world in, uh, on the campus at school. I've lost some friends for being a Christ follower. That's my, that's my life right now at work. I've got different ethics and values. I'm not trying to be a jerk or anything. But there's, there's some hard things because of my stance as a Christ follower. So when you go, well, man, I'm like the only one in my family that follows Jesus, and I think I'm a nutcase, and I've joined a cult. And there's hard things. What a good thing for us to be in those hard places and to be reminded about who God is and how we're to live. What a good thing to have hope that we will suffer for a little while and then God's going to restore us. He's going to strengthen us. He is going to establish us and make us strong. What a great thing. So Peter says, I've written this so that you will know how to praise God when it's hard. And you'll know how to live a life of praise when it's hard. For a God who's worthy of our praise is worthy of our devotion. Kind of think of that line as we go through chapter 1. A God who's worthy of our praise is worthy of our life's devotion. So he's going to talk about God being worthy of all praise in verses 3 through 12. And then he's going to talk about, in light of the fact, this is how we ought to live a life of praise, verses 13 through 25. So we dig into a God worthy of our praise. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, an allusion to the Spirit here, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's going to say God is worthy of our praise, and there's reasons. It's because there's great grace, an abundance of grace at the end of verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. He says there's great grace, and he's going to say there's great mercy from this Father, which all together makes for great salvation. When you're in the middle of trials, don't forget who God is and what he's done. He's given us a great salvation, great grace. What is grace? Well, it's something free that you didn't get, deserve. You got it. It's a gift, but you didn't earn it. It's not a paycheck. It's just God's unmerited favor to you. And it's this gift that comes to us. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatness of God's grace to us. It all comes, his goodness comes to us in and through the person and work of Christ and all the ripple effects of that. Great grace. We didn't deserve his grace. Great mercy. We deserved his judgment. But mercy is different from grace. If grace is getting what I didn't deserve, then mercy is I didn't get what I deserved. You're speeding. You get pulled over. You know it. He knows it. It's on the radar. You know it. Man, I didn't know it was a 35 and you were going 45. You deserve the ticket, but he gives you a warning. That's mercy. You didn't get what you deserved. Great grace, great mercy that makes up our great salvation. Man, it is so easy when life is hard and everything's pressing in and you're going through these trials to lose your focus and connection to who God is and what he's done. He says, go back to that. Don't ever forget that. You've got a great salvation. You've got a great God who in his mercy has saved you. Paul writes about God's mercy when he says this in, in Titus 3, 5, and 7. He saved us, God did, not because of righteous things we had done. In other words, we're not saved. We're not in this right relationship with God because of our good works. But because of his what? What does it say? His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified, made right, declared righteous by his grace, not our good works, we might become heirs, children with a bright future, right? Having the hope of eternal life, which isn't just like in the, you know, when I die, I'm gonna have eternal life. No, actually, eternal life is qualitative. It's something we have today. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. You have it today, not because of your righteous acts, but because of his great mercy. And that makes up our great salvation. And we notice his great salvation is, is, is expressed in these words, new birth. So it's not a second chance. It's not this second chapter. It's not a restart. It's understanding that spiritually speaking, before God pursued us and chose us and put his favor on us so that we could hear the word of God and understand that we need a savior and we believe that Jesus is the savior, before that, we were flatlined. If there was such a thing as a spiritual EKG, it was a flatline. There's no bumps and there's no beeps. It was just Steady, dead, no life. We've come to life. This great salvation has given us new birth, 
new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, all things are new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So from death to life. And that new birth gives you and me a living hope. A hope that is alive. It's a hope that is connected to a living Savior. And Peter says, look, I, I don't just know these things. I saw these things. I'm a witness to the resurrection. Christ died. He was buried and he rose again. I saw him. I touched him. I shared meals with him. We have a living hope that gives peace and joy today. And a confidence for the future. Because God's promises in the past have been fulfilled in Christ. He was going to send a Savior who would crush the enemy's head, Genesis 3.15. He's going to send a Savior, the son of Abraham, who would bring blessing to all the families of the world, Genesis 12. He's going to send a Savior who's going to be David's son, who's going to set up an eternal kingdom. He's going to send a Savior, Isaiah 53, who's going to suffer and be pierced for our sins and transgressions. He was faithful in keeping his promises in the past, and I'm trusting, and that's my living hope, that there's more to come. The best is yet to come, not just in heaven, not just when Christ returns, but in my life today, because there's future grace. So there's no more bad news in this future salvation and this living hope. Can you imagine no more bad news? No more stories of people dying in a school. No more injustice. No more abuse. No more extortion. No more stories like the one that broke yesterday of junior hockey team in Saskatchewan and 15 tragically killed in a bus accident, no more murder, no more hatred, no more anger, no more war, no more slander, no more fear, no more depression, no addictions, no envy, no greed, no anger, no disease or death. A great salvation. All through Christ, his resurrection, the one who continually extends God's mercy and grace. He is the gift that we didn't deserve. He is the extension of mercy because he paid what we deserve to pay on the cross, his life that we would find life. And that salvation is now and it's still to come. Philippians 1.6, my life verse, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So what the Bible says is, God has saved us into this relationship he is saving us. His Holy Spirit is like a sculptor knocking off every part of me that's not like Jesus. So that when Jesus comes back or calls me home, I will be like Jesus in his perfect humanity. And I will be living in a world that is all right. Everything that's twisted, everything that's broken, everything that's causing pain will be made right. Everything back in its rightful place. We live for that day, long for that day. And so the application is, hey, when we have this great salvation, then we praise God. That's what he does at, the ver at verse 3, and that's what he continues to do in verse 6. And we have this perspective, knowing what God has done and what he's doing and who he is on the hard things of life. So in verse 6, what does he say? In all this, our salvation... 
you greatly rejoice. His mercy and grace extended to Christ. You rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so he's saying... The result is when we get our, our, our eyes focused on our great God who's worthy of all praise, his great salvation, that's what we do. We praise him. We don't like, it, it, so just think about going to Miller Park. You're going to a ball game. And there are times when the announcer will say, please rise and stand as we sing the national anthem, right? Flags unfurled and someone sings. Men, remove your caps. There's instructions to stand. Seventh inning stretch, hey, they kind of invite people. If you feel like it, you want a little stretch, come on, let's just sing it together. Take me out to the ball game, right? But, but when, you know, and this really troubled my Cubs heart on Friday night, <laughs> when in the bottom of the ninth, you know, the Brewers had the last at bats, and, and your, your, your guy, he, he hit a walk-off home run, game over, the announcer didn't say, now would be a good time to get on your feet and, you know, just really cheer. What happened? Man, it was spontaneous. The bat crack on that ball, you see the trajectory, and everybody is on their feet, and nobody is thinking, is this a good time? Is this when we high-five? And even if you've never been to a baseball game, you figured out really quick, that was good. I should stand and go crazy. We, so it's spontaneous. When we have our eyes on the greatness of God and his salvation undeserved at the cost of Jesus Christ living for 33 years in this messed up world and always doing it right, only to end up nailed to a Roman cross on my behalf and the power of Christ to be raised from the dead that I would have a living hope. Man, that gets me to praise. He prays. Inexpressible joy that is glorious. And that salvation and that joy hangs in through all kinds of trials. Why? Because I know that's part of the plan. It was part of Jesus' plan, the cross. And it's part of my plan that he's going to allow me to go through difficult trials because it's going to do something. It's going to show that my faith is real. Faith is not real. When we say, I love God, I, 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 he's so great. And everybody goes, well, of course you do because you're living the dream right now, not the disaster. But when we're going through hard times and people see us still worshiping our great God because nothing's changed even though our world has changed. Oh man, that is a huge testimony to ourselves in a watching world that God is worthy of our praise when we praise him through the trials of life. And we know something about God's greatness that he would use the hard stuff to become good things in my life, to do what James talks about, build endurance and spiritual muscle because there's a resistance to my faith because I'm not feeling it. 
I'm not maybe even thinking it right now, but I'm believing it, that God is good and he's gonna use this hard stuff to make me more like Jesus. And so this is huge. Malcolm Mugridge, great British writer, writing on this very thing at the end of his life, came to faith late in life. He says this, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. And you know what? You start talking to people around this room, people who've been following Christ all their life, that's what we'll say. We wouldn't wish it on our enemies. I don't want to go through that chapter again. But man, that hard thing, it was also a really a good thing. It was a good thing. And so our praise flows from these new hearts, spontaneous. And if our praise isn't flowing today, if we don't have that inexpressible joy, if we've never had that kind of glorious joy in who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, then let me suggest the fault is not God's. The deficiency is not his salvation. The deficiency is in ourselves. We're guilty of thinking maybe we don't need saving. Guilty of thinking maybe, you know, our, our life isn't that bad. I'm better than most people. Maybe guilty of being deceived into thinking that we've received this salvation. It's just like the person who has the travel brochure. They've read it so many times. They're actually duped into thinking that they've been there when they've never left home. They're just so familiar with these things. Verses 10 through 12 ends telling us that this salvation is so great that the, that the writers, the prophets of the Old Testament who were led by the Holy Spirit, what they were doing is they were intently looking in and trying to figure out when this promised Savior, when this salvation was going to come through the sufferings of Christ, that the angels are like peering over the balcony of heaven because salvation isn't part of the equation for angels. You're either with God or you're not. And when you fall away from God, there is no plan of salvation for the angels. And they're just looking in and they're just amazed at going, oh my word, God saving rebels at the price of his own son. It's a great salvation and we're part of this great new family of God. He's saying that to these people, these suffering Gentile Christians. Hey man, you stand in the great line of God's people whose hope and salvation has always been in the promised Savior. And so when we understand who God is, what he's done, when we understand our great salvation the response is we get up on our feet and we praise him and then we don't stop there. Like, this is the easy part. We're singing. This is awesome. Like, tomorrow's the hard part, right? When, when we move from giving our praise to living for his praise. So God who's worthy of our praise is worthy of our devotion. And that's where he goes in that second half of the chapter, verses 13 through 26. And he's going to give us three specific commands that, in a sense, mark our devotion for God. Three commands that mark our devotion for God. What does it look like 
to live a life of devotion. We talk about we want to join God in changing people into devoted followers of Christ. What does that look like? He's going to point out three marks that are tied to the three specific commands of verses 13 through 25. The first is about our future. We're to set our hope on God's future grace. Our faith is rooted to God's past grace when Christ came, lived the perfect life, died, rose from the dead. We're to set our hope on future grace. That's the first command. That's the first mark. That our thinking about the future really is going to be important to a life of devotion. Because the second mark is that we're to live holy lives like our Father. Talk about a high bar. And then the third mark of devotion is that it's not enough to love God as we live obediently in response to who he is, but we also live loving other people to just keep it real because it's easy to get deluded in our minds. Oh, man, I love you, Lord. Your people are a mess. You know that. I know that. And, you know, to live with the saints above, that'll be glory. But live with the saints below, that's another story, and I don't want to know anything. And I get a pass because these people are crazy, and the church is messed up, and it's hurt me, and it hurts people. So I don't need to do that. No, you set your hope on the future grace of God. That's going to set you up on how you live today, a holy life. And that holy life is not only affection for God, but it's love for each other. So what does he say? He says the first thing in verse 13, set your hope on God's future grace. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace, look at what he says, to be brought, future grace, to be brought when? When Jesus Christ is revealed and is coming. He's coming back. He said that. He's going to make all things right. Yeah, it, it's future grace that our hearts and our faith and our hope is set on. So we set our hope on God's future grace. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 through 19, he talks about hope. He says, setting your hope in the writer of Hebrews is taking hold of it. Then he says, hope is like an anchor for your soul. So here's a really important thing to distinguish because we all have hopes. What are you hoping for? Oh man, I got all these high hopes. And the more important question is, what are your hopes grounded to? What are your hopes in for what you're longing for? See, the, the object of our faith, the object of our hope is critical, crucial. So think about hoping an anchor. So if the anchor is just drifting somewhere between the bottom and something solid and the surface, there, there's not an anchor here. It's not hooked into anything. It's got to be hooked into that which is solid, into Christ. Right. Otherwise, we're going to be drifting right. by all the currents and all the winds that blow in life. Set your hope like an anchor into that which is solid, Jesus Christ, who's called the cornerstone. So it's on future grace. And to do that, he says, we better be thinking right we better not fall asleep. We better not be distracted. We better be fully sober. So let's talk about that. If we're going to set our hope, he says, we got to have right thinking. Because actually what he says in chapter 3 of his second letter, that one of the things I'm doing in writing these two letters is to make sure that you're thinking right, that you have wholesome thinking. Because his, his, his conclusion, as is throughout Scripture, is thinking right leads to living right. He says, look, you cannot set your hope on future grace if you're not alert, if you're distracted, 
if you're inebriated in your thinking. It's not going to happen. So let's just think about driving. And a lot of ways to be distracted. I mean, I've heard of people crashing cars because there was a bee in the car, right? I've heard of people crashing cars because they are fiddling with their radio. But now we got these smartphones, and we're not so smart with our phones, are we? So 97% of Americans say it is a bad idea to be on your phone, to text and drive. 97%. That's us. That's like all of us. The 3% are the only honest ones because 50% of Americans actually do text and drive. So here's what happens, they say, when you're traveling down the Beltline in 55 and you look at your phone, just short. You I mean, it's just, I'm just, I just, you know, we're like Pavlov's dogs, right? The ding went off. I got, it's important. I got to look at it because my life's going to be over if I don't look at it right now. And it says that when we look down, we're traveling 55, and the time it takes us to read that text, we've traveled the length of a football field with our eyes closed. That's a, that's a bad thing to drive distracted. It's a bad thing to go through life distracted, not alert. So what does that look like to have minds that aren't alert? Well, here's what it says. We could hope in the wrong things. That's distracted thinking. That my hope is in my performance, in my strong desires to create a better life for me and the people I love. I'm placing my hopes in myself to work it out. Wrong expectations. Oh man, that's really, really not alert. That's really not sober thinking. Where we're going, well, you know what? Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And so I'm taking him at his word. And so I know what life is going to be easy, cheesy pie. I'm going to be tiptoeing through the tulips, right? And there's not going to be anything hard. And we forget that Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And if you want to be my follower, you better take up your cross and follow me. Our expectations, wrong thinking, not sober, not clear-minded. There are other ways that these, these thoughts are out of control, this wrong thinking, or as some of you have heard, this stinking thinking, where it's just not true. It's not tied into truth. It leads us astray. And the scripture says we're to take hold of all these kinds of thoughts and bring them captive. Look, look at what he says, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take captive every thought, everything we're thinking, to make it obedient to Christ. Does it line up with Christ? Is it the truth and the grace of the one who is full of grace and truth? And I think of that verse in 2 Corinthians, and it makes me think of my favorite new quote by Jerry Bridges. Remember this? He says this, Do not believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. Let me add to that. Do not believe everything you think and feel, because feelings are really strong. And it's like they're shouting at us, This is true because I feel it so deeply. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you feel. You cannot be trusted. You cannot trust those emotions to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. Your word is truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. And so if we're going to be successful, we need to be in the word. But it can't be like, yeah, I know. So I like, I've got this reading plan and, and every day I check off the boxes and I just, have you ever read through a section of scripture and go, I don't have a clue, and I just read. I mean, that's never happened to me because I'm a pastor. <laughs> it's just like, isn't it amazing? His is so amazing how complex our minds are. And so we're reading through the Word, but it's not just being in the Word. It's the Word is in us. 
this living, active word that, that is God's word, right? And it's powerful and it's effective to teach us, to rebuke us, to say, man, you lost your way, Mark, to correct me. Say, this is the back on the, on the narrow path here, center your life on God's truth. And, and it trains us how to live rightly before God and other people. I need to be in the word and I need to slow down. And I would be greatly aided with a little bit of quiet and solitude so that I could actually hear God's word as the spirit takes that word and helps me understand and applies it to my heart. So let me give you some example of wrong thinking. So relative to trials, you're in a trial and you find yourself mad at God that he hasn't kept his end of the bargain up. Well, that's wrong thinking about the grace of God, that somehow we're thinking the reason I'm in a relationship with God because I've been doing the work and he owes me. That's a wrong understanding of grace and salvation. You're in a trial and you're disappointed or mad at yourself for not learning the lessons God is trying to teach you. So you find yourself wanting to try harder. That's wrong thinking about God's purposes in trials. You're wallowing in guilt thinking I'm being punished for something I did before. That's wrong thinking about Christ and what he did on the cross, that he bore our punishment. So I'm not being punished here. I'm being polished here. We're in a trial feeling all alone and convinced that no one cares. Big time pity party. And that's wrong thinking about God's presence in my life and who I am as his child. We're in a trial feeling sorry for herself and pathetic for not being strong enough in this, in this really hard place and we have wrong thinking about who we are. We're, we're not some loser. We're chosen by God. We're his children. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven. We've got these trials and we're losing perspective and we're thinking, man, this trial, this is not, we're not suffering for a little while. This is my life for the rest of my life. There is no light at the end of the tunnel because there is no light in my life. It's never gonna get better. And that's wrong thinking about where we live and future grace. So we gotta think right about the future. We gotta set our hope on future grace, which isn't just in heaven, but it's every day of my life, today going forward. My faith is what has happened. It's hooked onto what Christ has done. My hope is in his promises for me today and to when Christ comes back and makes all things right. And my view of the future, your view of the future is gonna make all the difference of how you're living today. If you do not have hope in the future, there is no chance you're going to live a life that's holy, set apart for God. Look at the next verses, verses 14 through 16. What does he say? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he calls us, to be holy. That's something that we do, even though he's doing it. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit is sanctifying us. He's the sculptor chipping away at everything that isn't Jesus. But we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, for God is at work in us. So that's something we do. We take ownership that we're going to live a life that is different, set apart. That's the essence of holiness, set apart. 
for God, for his purposes. And what's beautiful here is he's not wrapping this in the, in the language of religious duty. And so do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He's saying, yes, as obedient children. But man, he said children. Did you hear that? He's talking about our holiness is all connected to a relationship with a father who chose us, with a son who gave his life to free us, with the spirit who's committed to helping us become more and more like Christ. It's a relationship. And to do that, we gotta make sure that we're not conforming to the patterns of this world. There's a great verse in Romans 12, Verses one and two, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, we're just talking about mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Here it is. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here it is again. How are we gonna live a holy life? Transformed thinking not letting the world squeeze us into their conventional wisdom. That's how it is. This is what drives us. It's about me. You only go around the world once, so grab all of it that you can. No, we reject that. We don't conform to that. He says, let me give you a little, let me give you a little motivation for being holy. Your father who loves you and chose you and sent his son to die for you, he, he actually is going to judge you too. He's impartial. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to judge you. So live today in light of the end. It matters. And when you stand before the father, the holy father, there's only going to be one of two things that you can say. I trusted Christ and all my shortcomings are on him. He paid for it or I was trusting in myself. As you think about your loving father, remember that you'll stand before him as judge. And here's a little tip, he says. So not only live with the end in view, but live today differently than other people. You're not a citizen, Philippians 3.20, of this world. You're a citizen of the next world when heaven comes down to earth. And so live like a foreigner who's just passing through the great Negro spiritual. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. And I wonder if our checkbooks, if our calendars, if our bank accounts, if our investments, if they reflect that truth that I'm a foreigner, I'm a refugee, I'm just passing through. Don't make and live like this is my final destination, that this is home. And so we've got this view of the future that transforms how am I living today? And Jesus says you're to be holy. And then he says it's this relationship and your holiness is an expression of your love because you're obedient children. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So he says, just to keep it real now, I don't want you to get confused to thinking that living a life that is devoted is just about you and God. You can just go out in the mountains, you can go out in the beauty of creation, and you can just do your thing with God because that's what a devoted life looks like. He says, no, I'm gonna keep it real. 
Because what I'm asking you to do is to live out the great commandments here, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's obedient children, taking God at his words, obeying his commands. And you cannot love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you don't love your brothers and sisters deeply with a sincere love. That word means not a hypocritical love, where we say the right things, but we don't really do the right things. He says, where we love one another deeply from the heart. And we need the word. He says we need the word to do this. And honestly, we need to have a a clear, and I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but sometimes we live like, you know, the, the church is just like, it's just an optional thing. It's not really an important, necessary thing. It's just kind of like a bonus thing. And it's just me and God. And God's saying, look, you need to know this about me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I've been in relationship. One God, three persons, for all eternity. And I've called you into a relationship. And it wasn't just with me through Christ. It was with my family you got to be in relationship. There is no way we can love one another deeply from the heart if we're not connected to a church. And there's no way we can love one another deeply if our connection to the church means I show up on the weekend and I'm so glad you're here. And this is good for us to to worship together and to say we love you, God. We want to submit and come under your word that we would live out your word. But if we think this is loving one another deeply from the heart, you are gravely mistaken. There's no way we're loving each other deeply from the heart right now. You may be with people who are in this room, but the reason you are is because you're in a different kind of relationship. You're not gathered in rows. You're gathered in a circle in your apartment's living room down at the, at the, at the end of your dorm room, and you're doing a Bible study. And you're doing life together around Christ and his word, and you're caring deeply. You're connected to what's going on in each other's lives, and you're trying to encourage each other to cause them to stand up and stand firm in the fight. We need the church. There's no way we can fulfill the one another's in the New Testament without that. That's why we keep saying, get in a group, get in a group, a life group, a Bible study, a support group. And so we need God's word. If we don't have God's word, we don't have the promises. We don't have future grace. We don't have God's word. We don't know the commands. There's no way for us to obey and show our love for God. We don't have God's word. We don't have his word that refines our hearts like that charcoal, whatever the purifier is in our little Brita, little jug there that we pour the, the, the water that we think needs filtering. We don't have the word. Oh, man, our motives and our methods of loving others is going to, we need the word. We need the word. We need the word. So final questions. Has God's great salvation brought you off your feet to expressing great praise, inexpressible joy. Have you actually ever experienced that? That within your personality, there actually has been an emotional, not just an intellectual, rational, that your heart is skipped because you've seen it, you're getting it, not in its fullness, but you're getting tastes of it. And if you haven't, well, today's the day to start that. If you've lost that, today's the day to recover it by going back to our great God. How's our thinking? Are we thinking like foreigners here? How's our thinking about suffering? Is it punishment or polishment? Are we connected to the word? We're way far more with the world's values. 
So Pete says, hey, it's hard. I get it. You're suffering for Christ. Remember your great salvation. And remember how to live a life worthy of praise. Let's pray. So Father God, we bless you. You're a great God. You've given us a great salvation. And you alone are worthy of our praise and devotion. But we confess inexpressible joy, glorious joy, are the times that we may rarely have ever known. And forgive us for that, but thank you for Jesus, who where we were deficient and are deficient, has always lived for your praise. Lord, forgive us too for not having hope on your future grace, not living holy lives, not being very loving or even connected. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were always devoted to the Father, to living a holy life, and you show the full extent of your sincere love when you died for us on the cross. We love you. Mm -hmm. Help us to love you more. We love you. Help us to walk with you in God-honoring ways. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen. amen.